Hello and welcome to episode 37 of Of Poetry Podcast with the poet Lauren Camp. Lauren Camp is the author of five previous books of poetry, including Took House, which won the American Fiction Award in Poetry and was a finalist for the New Mexico Arizona Book Award and the Southwest Book Design and Production Award. Her book, 100 Hungers, won a Dorset Prize and final citations for the Arab American Book Award and Housatonic Book Award. Her poems have appeared in Kenyon Review, Prairie Schooner, Narrative, Massachusetts Review, and Poet Lore. Her work has been translated into Mandarin, Turkish, Spanish, French, and Arabic. She's a senior fellow for Black Earth Institute and was astronomer in residence at Grand Canyon National Park in 2022. She's the Poet Laureate of New Mexico. Hi, and welcome, Lauren. Hey, Han. It's fabulous to be here with you this morning. I agree. Thank you for being here. Would you like to open us with a poem? I would. I think I will read the very first poem in An Eye in Each Square because it sets up really what I'm trying to do in the whole book in a way. And so I don't know if I even need to say anything about it up front. It's called Must Learn Neither. I had plundered past nervous, a tense Walmart truck clanging the interstate, smoke gnawing the face of some mountain, America aromatic with ravages, in schism, sacrificed. I stayed woke most nights near the door, occupied with every handle. Four years my father had gone from corridor to quiver, and I mustered my saddle to get to him often. Four years of crinkled conversing. Yes, and ginger. I shivered through rooms of my home in the desert with its stoic astonishments and took on some needles. I couldn't settle the ache, the curt country and my family, every ache, size, every shape. To reset, I've come to the distance, to watch the ocean repeat how to unfinish. I brought with me a light jacket and a thick book about Agnes Martin. I'm not sure why I packed it, what it celebrates, but I know the artist and her simple lines against excess. Know she made sacred and emptiness. Maybe I'll hear thin strands of refuge apart from the chaos that circles. What I want is nothing, no meaning, no matter, no more. I've run away with the most fragile questions, haggard in a small room, big enough for a bed with its modest blanket. I let my watch doze on the sill. Minor details hurtle over grasses, a wind-ribbed fence. The land around me tugs. I don't know it. Fog covers. Blank space consumes me. I figure every day I'll navigate to the tail end of this small town with its translucent leavings. What I want to figure out is what could be in the neithers. I am entering a conversation with Agnes for no reason I yet understand. I am not looking to rivet to her, but to be extracted from the sharp cuff of politics of dementia-tweaked presence, of the gravity of a future that keeps rolling toward me. How do you recover from a decisive wound? A line, a line, it never leaves you. Thank you so much. Um, when you were reading your poem, and the lines I brought with me a light jacket and a thick book about Agnes Martin, which I've always loved in this poem. I don't know if it's because it's about 
kind of the materiality of art making and our circumstance. But I just realized when you were reading that it reminds me of um, Emily Dickinson's I Started Early, Took My Dog. Um, it's got the same momentum. And you've got, of course, the sea and here too. Um, thank you. You're welcome. And I think also it has the the weight of the line right? The light and the heavy of the, I feel like in, in writing the poems for an eye in each square, long before I even had that title, I was writing really to the line about the first I was writing about Agnes's line, um, her, like her grids, her, especially her horizontal lines in her paintings. But, but then I began like conversing with that line. And so there's so many ways that the the line, the line of hers and the line of poetry kept returning to, to its own weight in a way. Does that make any sense? Yes. Um, and I was thinking, I, I, well, I was, okay. An aside is that I'm currently watching Demon Slayer with my children, which is an anime show and they do different things with lines but also um breath they use different forms of breath like ocean breathing and fire breathing breathing um and it's like part of the practice and like the rhythm right is, is part of the practice and the different stages and how you develop and um but i mean in terms of attention right there's always going to be this a length that we you know I don't think we always have the same length in time. I think that changes a lot, but there's a relationship um, in that, like that material building um, and how we use it. And I believe, isn't it in, it's it, at this point when we're speaking, it's um, not published yet, but the interview you did with River River Books, um, where you speak about the line as a character or is that in your notes? Because I've been reading so much of your work at the moment. <laughs> That I might be conflating these I, things. I think it's in the interview. It, it actually was a thing that I suddenly realized that, oh, you know, I, so in the writing process, I suddenly realized I'm writing to this line. And this line, as you just said about the the game with your kids, the um, the line isn't always the same. Agnes's line, even though it looks the same, isn't always the same. My lines of in in each poem are not the same. They're different both in in within this book and in everything I write. There's a different amount I want to communicate. There's a different rhythm or a different uh, um, expansion or 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 condensing that I want in a line. So in so many ways, that line keeps shifting, even if it looks the same. I read. I think I read in maybe an introduction to Martin's work somewhere. I can't remember where, unfortunately. Um, but that I've always thought of her, many of her paintings as being a square and they're actually slightly off that they're mm. um, because of this particular um, canvas she was using like there or, or a sheet, like they're, they're not quite squared. And I find that so fascinating because we want to think something is like exact like mm -hmm. oh it's exactly a square it's a, and no it's not um and I think that is very very interesting because we look at her work and and it looks like it's so regular like there's such a regularity it's almost a little frightening um but agreed and the regular is the word I would have used there too and yet it's not it's um she was very interested in the um the the mark of the hand the fact that it was i mean she could have put a ruler down a straight edge down and drawn that line exactly straight but i i just find the work really fascinating and i mean obviously <laughs> or i wouldn't have spent all this time on it but just the the ways everything you know, now that I'm thinking about this, just in talking to you, it's sort of the same way I find the desert fascinating. In that you have to look for things. It's things are not readily loud, 
and available in front of you. You have to make a bit of an effort. And that's really how I find Agnes's work. Yeah, I was hoping you would bring up the desert um, because you do have the line about your high desert home um, in the interview as well. And, and you were talking there about like the difference between where you had written some of your poems on the Washington coast and like having the sea and then like that really big contrast. Um, and I'm always interested in like how the environment gets into our poems, like with certain, like that permeability, which is now a word that's come up on several of poetry podcasts, but um, that we're kind of filtration systems, creatures more than systems. Um, but I was curious, I would love to hear you talk a little more about the desert. Um, also, I am very unfamiliar with New Mexico, but when I have told people about your work and um, who you are and your role in poetry in New Mexico as poet laureate, um, and then they will say to me, like, is she in Santa Fe? And I don't know any, and I'm like, well, I know she's worked in Santa Fe. And so there's obviously like, there's so much there that I don't know about. It's a loaded question when I get it. And I sense the loadedness, but I was like, I need to ask Lauren about this because she will know everything about this. Um, but I've also heard you speak about where you live on David Naiman's Between the Covers and that it's more, it's more rural or more farm-like or, yeah. I, so um, I, it's probably a loaded question when you get it, depending on who it's coming from. Um, but I, but it always is, right? Mm -hmm. I, wherever you live. Um, I live in the county of Santa Fe, but I don't live in the city. I live mm -hmm. in a rural farming village, a little south of the city. Um, it's wonderful here. And my, uh, when I use the word farming, it's probably nothing like North Carolina, farmland. Um, so it's high desert. I'm at almost 7,000 feet. Um, there's big wide open sky. There are mountains nearby. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's remarkable here in a very, uh, spacious, uh, high ceilinged sort of way, uh, where, because the trees, are not huge. The sky really gets to like be everywhere. It's it's ever present and really comes all the way down to the horizon. You can see it. Um, I've been here for, I've been in the same house actually for almost, I think 29 years. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And place is important to me in writing poems, in locating. It's a, it's like, I feel like all, I'm, I'm going to say this and then there'll probably be some poem that explains that, no, it's not always, but I feel like I, I locate, I take, take a place and that grounds any poem that I'm writing. So very often I'm writing about the desert because I find it fascinating because I'm here a lot. Um, but sometimes, sometimes I go elsewhere and those places are a new locator for whatever I'm writing about. And the thing I, and I, this might've been something I put in the interview. The thing I'm writing about is not the landscape. It's something else. It's it's emotion or it's history or it's whatever I'm, I'm working with, but the landscape is the, the vessel that holds that, that, that gives some grounding to that. I thought that Rebecca Morgan Frank in Lit Hop This Week put it beautifully when she said that camp she wrote camp achieves a fine balance between independence from and allegiance to her subject in an eye in each square and I think that that balance you have like the balance is the perfect word there because it, it absolutely is um and when I listen to you and 
David Naiman, who's basically a saint in my book, um, talk together. It's an amazing conversation. Everyone was right. Everyone was like, you haven't listened yet. It's amazing. Um, it is. And um, just like the way, I think the way that you both thread not knowing um, and there's just such a, a great humility there. And there's such a, like, it felt like such a bigger conversation about art to me that it wasn't specifically poetry. It was so much more specifically art and art making. Um, and I mean, this brings up a lot of different things I, I really want to talk with you about today, but um, it brings up that first of all, your poetry really began out of an ekphrastic um, movement in your life and like how you were engaging with literally already your own fiber art. Um, and I think that's amazing because how, you know, especially for women poets, how often has uh, fabric and fiber been a metaphor for their own writing? So these things are really entwined. Um, but so, so I think that's very interesting, like art, birthing other art. So I was thinking about um, Athena coming out of Zeus's head that there's this like art out of another art. Um, and I don't think you ever do it in a way where your reader really worries about it. Like poetry is not subservient to, or poetry isn't, there's no like power levels or hierarchy. That's not how the two are engaged in your work, which I think is so very pleasing. And um, I mean, Diane Seuss, right? She has that beautiful blurb that she wrote for your book. And I think does what she says is so true. So I'm going to read it real quick. Um, where she writes that um, Camp writes, illuminating the fact that ekphrasis is no contrivance, it is a cosmology. Um, and I think that is right. That it's not like something extra that poetry is doing. It's not an exercise. It's not a secondary thing. Um, and so I really love knowing that your practice really grew out of your arts together. And it's not like this, you learn to write poetry and then you add in like, now let's write about art. Um, that it's been there from the, from the very beginning. It has. And that cosmology is a beautiful word there. Um, yeah, I came to poetry through, really through a self-taught career as a visual artist. And I... So I didn't, honestly, I didn't know what I was doing in either field. And I just, but I, my whole life, I've been sort of creative without any direction and, or without any, I should say, without any outward direction. So as a, as a little kid, I would create what I had the materials to be able to create. Nobody said, you do it this way. Nobody said, don't do this. I just, did what I did and went in the directions I could really based on, I don't know, materials a lot, I, I guess. I had no art materials growing up, I but you know, I had my mother's magazines and I could cut them up and I could repurpose them. And uh, she wasn't very happy about it, but I could do it. And, you know, and I, and I could, like at one point I copied a uh, Raggedy Ann and Andy book that I wish I still had. I traced it. I, you know, I just, I wanted to create. And so it was this pure desire to create with no, um, with no requirement to have an end result, with no um, parameters of how I, I should do it. So, so art and poetry both fit into that, even as an adult. They, I want to make what I need to make, and then I hope somebody cares about it. But that's not what I'm thinking about. And and I definitely don't value one over the other, art over poetry. I think in these poems, they're not 
for the most part, not about Agnes. They're in conversation with her. And even more so, they're in conversation with her paintings her and, and drilling down further with that line as I'm traveling across the painting myself. Um, and they're in conversation with her reason for making them and my reason for caring about I also really appreciated that you brought up your childhood um, on Between the Covers and, you know, growing up in the suburbs of New York and, and just, I think it's really good, like whether you're like a parent writer or whether you were, you were a child that grew up without a lot of art resources. Like, it's so good to hear someone who like, who found their art, who found what they wanted to do, who kind of made their own space and were given a certain amount of space to do it in. Um, but I think that there is kind of, there's this binary of thinking about like privilege versus deprivation and like, what do you have resources for and what do you not? And there's a lot of anxiety among young parents about giving your children all the things that, so that they can flourish, you know? Um, but I think that we often have, even in deprivation, we often have things that are very, you know, that are important spaces for us or important points of access. Um, when when I was thinking about what you said about like the suburbs versus um, New Mexico and the desert, and then also about not being given like the materials of art, but also having the space for it and not being, not being told, no, you can't. Um, my mother would always someone who would make comments about nature and observation comments. And it was like very, I was very young when I realized not everyone did that because I made a comment to a, a little friend about the clouds and they were like, that is so weird. Why would you say that? Or they said something that was like negative. And I just realized like, Oh, not everyone like talks about the clouds. Like not. <laughs> so. Well, yeah. It makes me think that privilege like I was privileged not to be stopped right that in itself was a kind of privilege just maybe it was even a kind of I mean it could be deprivation but also nobody said no you can't do this and the fact that nobody paid any attention to the stuff I was creating turned out to be kind of a gift for me because there was no judgment. I wasn't putting a judgment on it. I was making the thing I wanted to make until it was done. Mm -hmm. And nobody was saying, no, that's not good enough or do more because nobody was paying any attention to it. Now I think that's a kind of gift. Yeah. I would love to talk with you more about silence. And I'm wondering if there's a poem you would like to read Okay, I'm going to pause for a second yeah, and take think. your time. Yeah. I kind of want to read flat statement. What do you think of that? Or what? In, okay, I just realized I'm like, do I even know how to pronounce the word? Because I always say interst interstice. Interstice. Yeah. Interstice. And circumstance on page 29. I was also thinking this poem is very good. Um, Sure. About silence, but please read what you would like to read. Um, that's fine. I have to find it. There it is. Yeah, that's a good one. Interstice and circumstance. She outstripped celibate by arriving to a canvas to again begin. In the probable light, tracing each omission. I waited half my life to inhabit such a loosening. So often it seems I need and must hide from the same things I need. She cued into a longing what I couldn't ignore, a year or the space that is conjured in front of me, the space ample to home and a ceiling, no longer rung patterns and amplitude but this, that less would not be ruin, but essential. Yes, that seems absolutely on topic for what we were just discussing. I think the desert 
like I moved to the desert on a whim, uh, really. And, and it is, in fact, the way I've made a lot of important life decisions is kind of, this feels right, I'll do it. And I've been very lucky in that way. But but I think less, which I think of as the desert. It also, in some ways, we I could have a whole conversation with you about how it has more, but less in that it's quieter than some other places, uh, was deeply appealing to me. Uh, the desert is what taught me to look carefully, um, to notice things, because there was more quiet in which to do so. There was less coming at me, either from like super vibrant colors or just big amounts of noise and activity. It's it's quieter here. And it's certainly quieter where I am on a dirt road. I, when I first moved to where I live, I was the my house was the only one on this dirt road. And you know, it was very quiet and very spacious. And that coming from living in the suburbs of the big city, that was really wildly appealing to me and so unusual and so different. The outside space changes so much um, because I grew up very rurally and I would go outside to be alone because I had a ton of siblings and but outside you were, it was private, but in it's, it was so hard moving here for me because when you go outside, like our backyard, before we put up our fence, it was like five homes were looking into your bit because we were like bordered by two cul-de-sacs. And it's such a different, it just changes everything. Um, it's suddenly like social and public. And, um, but I hear, you know, what you've said about what Agnes Martin meant for you as like that you needed like the quiet and you needed the calm. And especially with like, um, you know, the administration after 2016. I try not even to say that person's name um, is that like you, that you gravitated towards that as like kind of a, a spiritual centering or like a, um, a rest or something there. And I, I have a similar relationship with um, via Selman's work where like, it does something, it just does something for giving you space and time. And, um, I mean, the palette are very soothing and, um, like whether it's stars or ocean or something, you know, like these ex expanses, right. There's something very expansive in those places. Um, but when you were talking with David Neiman and, um, you said you were talking about your relationship to with your father and your father's stories and absence and silence. And I was so struck by what you said, which was what I had was silence and a repetition of silences. And I was, it just blew me away because the way you said it, it sounded like a bounty. Like it sounded like it was a gift or a positive, like, something is something instead of a negation instead of which I often think of silence as like a failure or um, you know, definitely a, a performative speech actor, something's happening there. But um, so I was really interested and I was like, I would love to just talk to you more about silence. But. Yeah. I, I don't think of silence automatically as a failure really at all. In fact, I think coming from the visual art, I think of that negative space as critically important. So in the poems for 100 Hungers with my father, um, where I was trying to write into his childhood in Baghdad, I, I, what I had were silences and that was frustrating because I, I had no information and, but ultimately, when I finally was able to return to it and um, the idea that all I had were silences became a kind of opening for myself to step in there and do what I needed to do with that space and 
try to shape what I understood of his childhood, even with no information and try to do it as accurately as I could. So it was, it was hard to do that in that case, in the case of Agnes and her paintings. I mean, her paintings are, they're not silent, but they're quiet, right? I mean, I guess to, to some people, they're silent. To some people, I know they are frustrating or they are, um, I think some people find pleasure in them and some people find a, a great amount of angst in them, in their response to them. I be, and I know this because I've, I've sort of asked, done like a non-scientific survey of this, uh, where I've asked people, and if they know Agnes's work, they they're on one side of the, uh, uh, you know, they're not in the middle, like yeah, whatever. They're they're usually on one or the other side, saying, "I love standing in front of them," or, "No, they 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 make me tense or or something." So that less is not for everybody. It's it's appealing to me. And, and for, for whatever reason, I was just a few moments ago thinking when I was creating as a kid, I worked in the basement of our house. Uh, my house now doesn't have a basement because desert homes mostly don't, but, um, but the basement was not beautiful. It was not, you know, was not wonderful, but it was a, it was a place of quiet. It was a place where the outside world wasn't pinging at me wasn't you know what you know there was nothing that I had to attend to except whatever was going on in my mind and so that was in a way a place of less also hadn't really thought about that until you said something about it there's that I've written a little bit about it but there's that night sky painting by Via Selmans that was attacked and destroyed by a security guard and he like gouged it with his keys um and there's definitely something about it like the first time I saw that painting you can kind of understand it's almost enragingly calm it's uh, it's just so it's just like like it's almost I don't know um yeah I mean think about that enragingly calm. <laughs> you have to be in the right space to need that or to you have to be able to uh, mirror it back or or you have to be desperate and I really I was in the writing of these poems mm -hmm. it was it was the administration it was the country it was really the world in a way it was climate change it was like so many things in the far larger world but it was also my family and what was going on in my family which was which was devastating and and consuming and and kind of chronic crisis of my father was plummeting into dementia into alzheimer's though we didn't have that diagnosis and i was his power of attorney and i was making a lot of very hard executive decisions about with some help from my siblings for sure but but i was the one ultimately signing things and it was terrifying and I had this person who I love his entire life and well-being and care in in my in my hands. And I I needed that calm. That calm was not enraging at that point. It was it was a kind of desperation. Like, please let there be this space. And I think that art really allows us to be like, because art is mercurial. We as like viewers and listeners and participators, like we get to be mercurial too, that there, that there is art that answers like where you are and what you need. And, and there's art at different points of your life that will be more interesting. The older you get, I find that changes for me. Um, like now I love Via Selman's work. Like that was years ago when I first saw her. I think it was an image magazine or something. It was an interview. That art can carry as many things as we need it to carry, like poetry can. And I think I that think, that's oh, please go right ahead. I I think that's one of the 
the reasons that poetry is so appealing to me. Also, contemporary art, sort of in a similar way, it is not prescribed. It is not, this is what this is about. Um, there's space for me to enter. There's space for me to engage with it or question it or move around it, either the art or the poem. It's not, you know, it's it's not so exact. And that means that I can come back to it also at different times and see, you know, I've I've stood in front of Agnes Martin paintings many, many times over the years. And sometimes they're they're just interesting and other times there's a need for them. So I agree. You come at it at, at different stages in your life and different seasons. I know there was another question. Oh, I just thought when, you know, when we talk about an eye in each square, when I'm where I can, I do as editors too. Um, and something I kind of wanted to touch on during the podcast is that, you know, I think there's a, a gravitational pull towards Agnes Martin, but you're also doing so many other kinds of things inside of the collection. And so there's so much in terms of grief and, you know, aging parents and, and illness and care. Um, and I love in the opening poem that you read that you use like the saddle that there's this like, um, because that's such a, like an image of laborious travel, like difficult travel um, and, you know, travel with an end, right. That's um, like, it's got a very specific framework for that travel. It's not pleasure. It's like care and it's this care work. Um, and so that care work is very present throughout the collection. So I, I just want to like touch on that now. Um but the openness too to the narrative of like art in a life and how art intersects with a life and different points in the speaker's age and different art groups and um, that those like I think that especially I mean I felt this so much when listening to you and David talk is that there are so many openings in your work in life and you make things seem like possible that it's like oh you don't have to, you know, that there are many different ways to come to art and to pursue it. And I always love, I'm always very encouraged when a writer or artist is like, I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm just trying to make good decisions. And there've been a lot of different jobs in a lot of different places, but this, you know, that there's not one set thing. There's no one set value. Well, the, thank you. The, um, the example that I, I want to give you a little example because I think it's probably odd, but it was sort of the the way that I would, in making visual art, the way that I would put colors together. I didn't have training in that any more than I had training in anything else. And I could have taken a color theory class. I took a little two-hour workshop at one point, and I came home with these little color chips in fabric, and I was trying to learn, okay, so these are secondary, and this is whatever. And I'm, I'm putting the colors together. And, and my husband said, please stop doing that. You do, you do your colors so well, like they're so, they're so surprising. Please don't learn the right way. Um, but long before that, what I was always looking for in putting colors together was I would take so again, I'm working in fabric at this point, I would take the one color, put it up against the other. And I was looking for something that was kind of, kind of made a little friction. Um, it kind of made me just slightly nauseous. Okay. So not totally, not all out, like, that's horrible, but just slightly like, oof, I don't, think that's exactly right. And so that made it interesting. So um, so that is still how I'm trying to put together language in a way. Like it's my, whatever the, the carryover of that is to language. How can I put language together so that it's, a, it's unusual? It's 
slightly uncomfortable, but not all out uncomfortable. So unexpected. And it's, it's not even, I'm trying to make good decisions. As you said, I'm trying, I'm trying to get to that place where it's, it's a little, a tiny bit dicey and somebody has to look a little more closely. And that somebody is usually me to begin with. That's, you know, something in, I think like disjunction, I think about disjunction a lot because I love CD Wright's work, Um, but that there's something so realistic, something that we see in linguistic disjunction that mirrors our everyday lives. And so it's like, oh, this makes sense because this is actually how I move throughout the day, speaking with people on a lot of disparate different topics and registers and everything. Um, But it's fascinating and it's, it's so much more interesting than something where all the wrinkles are ironed out or all the pieces are, you know, uniform. And, um, and like, I mean, that came up with Agnes work earlier. It's like, even when you think something is uniform, well, it's not, it's slightly like, you know, that the eye wants to simplify sometimes, um, or reduce. And, um, yeah, I think that comes, it comes up in your work as like a space for mystery and a space for not knowing. Um, And you invite it, you invite it in, which I was really trying to think this morning about like what was so different about listening to you talk about art and, you know, whether you were talking about like your fiber artwork or poetry and I was like, this just feels different. And then I was like, it's because Lauren doesn't sound like she knows exactly what she's talking about. And that (laughs) ends up sounding more like someone who does like that sounds, I trust that. Like, I trust that in a way I'm like, oh, you really, you really know what you're talking about. You don't because you're like, and you're open that you recognize it. Like, oh, that I'm searching for the different parts that they're not all known that I can talk about them and I can talk about their pieces, but, and just listening to you, I was like, Oh, this is how, like, this is how young poets, I think this is how we should be learning to talk about our poetry. Not that everything's known, not that um, we're doing this and we're doing that, but like that there's so much that we do not know. I like that space of not knowing. I, I mean, that's, that space is compelling to me. I don't even have to, get to where I know ever. I, I can just move a little forward in the not knowing, right? A little deeper in, okay, now I have this little bit that that I now know to add to the whole larger scope of what I don't exactly know. I mean, I'm I am forever telling my students, don't don't write with the ending in mind. Don't, if you already know everything you want to say, this is not an interesting thing to write about. You, there has to be something more. And, and I feel like in an eye in each square, I left still not really knowing Agnes Martin, not fully getting her. And that was really fine because this is not a book. This is not a, a, a book in poems that's a biography of Agnes at all. It's she's in there. She's an important element of it, but I didn't have to get her figured out. I kind of had to get me figured out Mm -hmm. in the process and maybe the country and maybe like I had other things I was, (laughs) I was also investigating. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Carl Phillips. I, I can't remember if he said this in an interview or if he just wrote this on Twitter, but like, there are other things I want to do in the day besides poetry. And I loved, I loved him for saying that because poets are doing so many different things. Um, and a lot of times our attentions are moving in a lot of different ways um, when we're, when we're working and when we're not working and the writing isn't always the physical act of writing. It's like everything you're doing. Um, that actually makes for richer poems, I think, than not writing time. Yeah. The doing whatever else. I think that's why sometimes I pick up and go somewhere else just 
because then I have new everything I have to learn, new people I'm I'm that are somehow neighboring me, new space inside and outside, a me that has to figure out how I'm going to put my stuff in this space and how I'm going to maneuver in this space. So I've got a lot of other stuff I'm doing when I go somewhere else. And that's helpful. I I am not a good, I will sit down and write for two hours every day sort of writer. I That is not me. I write when I have something mm-hmm. I want to hold or something I want to, I don't know, something I want to figure something out about. Mm-hmm. And otherwise I want to go and do things and experience something else or, or simply I have to go and do things. Like there are things to be done. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that so much. Um, when you were talking about the not knowing and I was thinking about, well, I was thinking about myself being a younger writer too. And I realized that like knowing is so, well, for me it was, maybe this is not everybody, (laughs) but like it was equated with safety. And so if I knew where I was going, I just, I felt I felt a lot better, but it's so interesting that, you know, writing is risk. And, um, I've been talking with my kids about this, like that art that you want something that risks something that, that there should be some higher stakes. And we were just, we even moved from watching like a younger children's show to watching one with like, there's a possibility that a character could die. And so suddenly my youngest is like, oh, this is higher stakes. This is, and I'm like, I know, <laughs> you know it's a, but like that, that feeling like, oh, suddenly anything could happen. It's not just, you don't know the characters, everything's not going to be perfectly safe. Um, and that's a different field entirely. Yeah, the the risk, I, I love that idea of risk and risk doesn't have to be grandiose either, right? It's, um, like the the risk for me was going away to the Washington coast with this biography of Agnes Martin and nothing else. Nope. I was going to write and I didn't go with a project. I just went with this, this, you know, this book and it was mm-hmm. just, now what, like, what, what am I doing? Um, typically when I pack books and I go on trips, I never read the books. I never, like I, I want a different book all of a sudden. I don't want the books I've come with. And um, and so invariably I'm like, okay, uh, where am I where am I gonna go? But I started in on that book and it was a large, at least in my mind, it was it was a large book. Um, and it was so enigmatic. And I would read a little and I would nap because it was exhausting, because it just didn't go anywhere. It was like so circular in how Agnes presented herself and and I just would keep writing and I'd write about the coast and I'd write about the desert and you know that that was a risk too just going with nothing going with less without a a clear plan like you know risk comes in a lot of ways and I think it is I think it is valuable Mm -hmm. I think it's valuable in writing in creating in existing in a way yeah Agree. Well, would you like to close us with a poem or two, whatever you would feel like reading? Sure. I think, let me just pause here. I think I'm going to read, to find it on here. One or two. Yeah. Oh, two, please. If you, if you feel up to it. Okay. I probably, can I read one of the, how do you feel about one of the really short poems? Yes. Please. One of the Okay, so I'll read and then I'll pause and find the other one. Sounds good. How? When we had been driving for hours, a family with an eye in each square of window and our ability to pick out a gloomy blob in a field or a field full of blobs was dark with the faulty between us. My mother called from the front seat, kids, cows. And if we lifted up, we might have seen sunset or prayer 
or her delicate hand in response to the very real view rippling at the surface. The Tao says stillness is easy to maintain, but we were tired of a bearable distance and nothing ever meant look until years later when she had become slight in her cheeks and shoulder blades and just before the oncologist told me, before we had traveled that bleak journey to carry the silence between us, when all that was possible was unsettled and worse, was secure in dissolving, and we couldn't be anywhere else. And there are a few very short poems in the book. I have never read them aloud except to myself, but they they are part of my visualizing of Agnes drawing one of those lines. So they're they're intended to be a sort of spacious look at the effort of, or a little portion of the effort of her, her process. So I'll read this one. It's called Line Spectra. Were our hearts so sheltered that we couldn't let them move along? Did the stars still roam if we didn't see them? What if the artist knew it was possible only to preserve a bound? Thank you, Lauren. Thank you so much. What a pleasure it's been to talk to you about this. Thank you for believing in this book and me and these poems that that work around Agnes Martin and my life and the country and everything. It means so much to me to be part of the River River Books family. Thank you for believing in us. We were just thrilled, um, thrilled to publish your book. And we're so excited for everyone who gets to read it. And yeah, we couldn't be more proud. So thank you so much. And we'll have purchase links for an eye in each square as well as links to any of the texts or paintings we spoke about today in the show notes and listeners can just find them underneath the podcast and they'll also be online. So thanks again. Thank you.